Hi everyone, this is Ian from Anantech.com and you're listening to another edition of the Anantech podcast. Today is podcast 33, our Computex 2015 edition. I'm joined today by Christian, our senior SSD editor. Hey guys. And we're both at Computex. We're in a a large enough room, <laughs> hotel room after the show, and we want to talk to you guys about what was released at Computex and some of the interesting things we saw and the uh, many, many meetings we had to go to, going from place to place and taxi to taxi. But there were two big launches in Computex this year. Well, three. Um, I'm going to skip the NVIDIA 9, uh, GTX 980 Ti. Uh, that's more Ryan's feature, so hopefully we can get Ryan on a podcast soon and talk about that. But for me, I covered uh, both Broadwell and Carrizo. Broadwell being a, a launch with where, we, where we actually had samples to test, and Carrizo more sort of a deep dive into the architecture before we see devices later in the year. But in terms of Broadwell, this launch was the essentially the desktop CPUs. There's a little bit of confusion with regards to what actually this is called. Um, so we know that Broadwell Y was Core M, then we had the next release of Broadwell U in January, and after Broadwell U is Broadwell H. So the Broadwell H line is what we normally find in sort of mini PCs, sort of higher notebooks, all-in-ones. These are the sort of the 47 to 65 watt parts. And the launch this week was technically Broadwell H. Of the five CPUs in Broadwell H, two of them were LGA, so that means that they're socketed and can go into a 9-series motherboard and three were BGA, which means that they're more focused sort of in a mini PC space, sort of like the Nook and the Gigabyte bricks, but the sort of the high-powered 65-watt parts. So this is technically the first time we have seen a socketed part on Broadwell H, on any H line from Intel for that matter. We were lucky enough to get two of the CPUs in to test, the uh, i7-5775C, which is the quad-core with hyper-threading, running at a peak of 3.7 gigahertz with Iris Pro. That's Iris Pro 6200. That's the 128 megabytes of EDRAM. And we also had the i5-5675C in as well, which is the i5 version. Um, please check out our review on the website. Um, we only had a limited time to test before we had to come to Computex, but we managed to get in through our CPU tests and our GPU tests. Unfortunately, the uh, the BIOS BIOSes were and drivers were a little beta. Uh, the companies will say that they're final, but we still had issues in terms of stability. So this is why you won't see any overclocking results on the website. Um, that we're going to save that for a part two after I get back from Computex. But the performance for Broadwell that we tested, Broadwell H, means that uh, Intel now have the integrated graphics performance crown that's been taken from AMD. Um, though if you ask people who like AMD, they'll say that, well, the CPU costs twice as much, so you might accept, expect that to happen. But in terms of absolute outright performance, Intel now has that crown. And as a result, the CPU performance on the Broadwells, people were expecting Broadwell launch to have the equivalent to the Haswell launch. So you'd have a 90, you'd have an 88 watt Haswell part and an 88 watt Broadwell part, both aligned for direct comparison. These Broadwell parts are 65 watts, so they're actually down in CPU frequency. As a result, the CPU performance was about in line with what we expected with a small um, IPC bump, but 
it wasn't troubling the uh, i7-4790K from Haswell that much. Our results, you know, were pretty much fell in line with kind of what we expected. And as I say, we weren't able to overclock, but since we've been here at Computex, um, we've had from other external sources that overclocking on Broadwell H will be slightly less than on uh, Haswell K. So you might get 4.1 or 4.2 gigahertz from a 3.3 gigahertz Broadwell H. So that's another 800 megahertz. As a result, you won't see the sort of 4.7 gigahertz Broadwells, which um, might well might confuse a few people, or people who are expecting to upgrade, especially that they won't get that high overclock that or the higher overclock that Haswell provided. This is part of a result of you know Broadwell being the f um, this is the first socketed 14 nanometer chip, but also as a result of the crystal well, the 128 megabytes of EDRAM means that the actual die on the package is off-center, so when it comes to actually producing the Intel producing that package, it's off-center, which means the heat is more localized, and as the heat is more localized, that inhibits some limitations. Um, there's also other limitations in there by virtue of it being 14 nanometer. So unfortunately, if you were expecting that ultimate high-level upgrade, it isn't happening, but if you wanted something that you can play with, with Crystal Well installed, this this essentially fulfills Intel's promise to both be upgradable from Haswell, have Iris Pro in a socketed form, and make it overclockable. And they are releasing some other Xeon parts. There is actually a 95 watt Xeon which we want to get in and test, and that's socketed as well, but the price of that is around 550 US, I think, so that's going to be cost prohibitive even more. But we'll see if the performance, we can do some better IPC performance tests when we get back from Computex. So the uh, thing I'm wondering about is, like, because you have an iGP, but in a high-end CPU, do you really get to use the iGP? Because if you want to game, you would obviously have a high-end or at least some sort of dedicated GPU. Yeah, uh, that that is a valid criticism, um, whether you use the integrated graphics. If you're going to use a discrete, then that just kicks it out. You still technically have the EDRAM, which you, acts as essentially as a buffer between the main memory. So it, whenever the CPU requests memory, your cache misses are more likely to end up in that EDRAM than is in main memory, so you save time by not cycling out. But one of the aspects to think about here is DirectX 12. So DirectX 12 exhibits asymmetric rendering, which means that it will identify all the GPUs in the system, and the if the game developer so builds their engine, it will batch, it will order the GPUs in the system in terms of you know how quick they are, how how powerful they are, and it will batch work that it needs to be rendered, and then it will send it to the most appropriate GPU to be rendered. So if it's uh, low priority work, it could send it to the integrated graphics while still having a discrete graphics card free for high performance work. I mentioned AMD in here because I saw it with AMD hardware Yeah. Um, when we were discussing Carrizo, and they had both their integrated graphics and a discrete card on uh, the Stardock Oxide Games Ashes of the Singularity title, which is still in beta, but we saw that being worked out. And they again, they, they had a discrete card and an integrated graphics, and in, 
Enabling the integrated graphics gave a 10% boost to the frame rates in a very high impact scenario, you know, akin to DirectX 12 with lots of draw calls. So I think the fact that you're pairing you know, high-end CPU with a high-end IGP and they're not using the IGP, yes, it has limitations right now, and it's you know it's an upgrade path for people who want high-end integrated graphics. Um, but DirectX 12 is where that it becomes more important then. But we'll also have more other hardware to play with. I think when DirectX 12 takes hold with more titles. So by the end of the year, when we have more say AAA titles focused around DirectX 12, that's where I think people realize, oh, hey, I bought you know an APU, I bought integrated graphics, and if it sat idle for two three years. Now we, now we can use them, which uh, I think is going to be part of the benefits. But again, it depends on the developer, on the game developer actually implementing the asymmetric rendering feature, because it's not going to be a feature of the drivers, it's going to be a feature of the engine. Yeah, I think uh, that's, that's a good point. And uh, did we actually have something in the past? I think, uh, was it uh, Lucid Virtue or something that, like that, that actually tried to get the idea of using the IGP and yeah. dedicated graphics in well, uh, Lucid Virtue came out, um, correct me if I'm wrong, with the 7 series motherboards. Yeah. So the Z77, I remember... Well, I, I think it was actually the 6 series, because I think I have one uh, C68 okay. board with that. Okay, uh, I remember doing testing on an ECS motherboard that had um, a Lucid chip on it. And we tried with, you know, mixture of AMD and NVIDIA graphics. And yeah, that acts as sort of like a virtualization layer. Again, it would send commands to the most available processor, yeah. but the limitation there is that you know Crossfire and SLI is essentially a, an alternate frame rendering mode. So you still you need you know equivalent hardware to see the speed ups. That's why whenever we suggest Crossfire or we suggest SLI, it's always the same card twice. Yeah. And if you look at the compatibility lists with Crossfire and with SLI, they always suggest similar hardware. So hopefully with that feature and with integrated graphics it will mean that if you had say two low-end cards and a high-end card it would work, which would mean that you'd keep your GPU upgrades for three years. You'd end up with a system with four cards and they could all work towards your game if you didn't mind the power consumption. To wrap up Broadwell, go see part one of our testing on the website. Uh, it's pretty extensive in terms of you know the games we test and the discrete graphics cards we test with those to see how they perform against CPUs without that EDRAM. But there will be a part two uh, where we will get a chance to do some overclocking, perhaps do some proper power testing and see how how much less, I guess, DRAM, effect, DRAM speed affects integrated graphics now on Crystalwell with Broadwell. The other CPU launch, um, or I guess APU because we're talking AMD here, well, is Carrizo. Carrizo uses uh, AMD's new bulldozer-based core called Excavator. Again, this is another one where I urge you to check out our, our content on the website because we were flown out. We've, I was flown out by AMD to uh, San Francisco a couple of weeks before launch, and they went into a deep dive in the architecture about how Excavator changes compared to previous bulldozer architectures. At the time, I labelled the change as the biggest change to Bulldozer since Bulldozer, because AMD, nor normally with these iterative process updates, we're used to AMD updating, you know, 
one thing on the process or two things, going for a really low-hanging fruit in terms yeah. of updating the silicon. But this time they've uh, tried to do about 10 different things, all in the name of saving you know, power, die area, and increasing performance. And that's that's ultimately the holy trinity when you're designing a CPU, right? When you're up, when you're updating a CPU architecture, you want lower power, you want higher performance, and you want lower die area. A lower power, especially for a mobile CPU like Carrizo, means more battery life. High performance, well, that's self-explanatory, and uh, less die area means that you can fit more dies on a wafer. Yeah, that's and, you get lower cost. Yeah, so. That's that. That's the trifecta. So that's this is what AMD has told us that they've done with Carrizo. So Carrizo is focused on 15 watt parts. 15 watt is what you'd expect to find in a laptop around 400 to 700 dollars. Now somebody's going to call me out and saying, "Well, you're just saying what AMD is saying." Well, AMD made a very a very good point when they were discussing this with us. Um, if you look at the laptop desktop market, excluding tablets for a second, yeah. laptop and desktop, more people buy laptops than desktops. It's about 60-40, or maybe even 55-45. But in terms of laptops, you look at the you know the low end, which is the pre-400 dollar market. You look at the mid-range, the four to seven, and you look at the high end, 700 plus. Then you look at Apple, <laughs> which is 1100 plus. But um, that mid that mid market is where most is where most people buy their hardware for laptops and this is what AMD's hoping for AMD's presentation to us included things such as uh, normal laptop uses which you may necessitate higher CPU or a better GPU due to and that, that will increase cost and they wanted to bring some of that down to a lower price point Especially when you know they have heterogeneous system architecture enablement near compliance. I'm not sure if it's fully complied yet, but they said it adheres to the full uh, the full spec, which still needs to be ratified. If it's ratified as it stood two weeks ago, then they would be compliant. But I'm not sure if they've got um, they've announced full compliance yet. But Carrizo aiming for that 15 watt. Part of the benefits that Carrizo wants to bring to the uh, wants to bring to the market is through the design. So, what AMD have done with the design is they've introduced high density libraries. So this means that different logic parts of the CPU now use a lot less area. That in turn saves die area. Normally, you'd think, well, that might if you're packing things in closer, then you can't generate as much heat. So you have to reduce frequency. Now, AMD are saying that they don't need to do that. They can even raise frequency with their designs. Um, actually, the high-density de high library project within AMD was sort of seen as uh, like a skunk works, moonshot-type scenario that they've been working on for a while. And as they pulled it off, essentially, is what they're saying, um, which is uh, good for them, I think. Um, I think we all want AMD to uh, at least be more competitive in the current market. But along with the high-density libraries, they've also doubled the L1 data cache, which is no mean feat because the L1 data cache needs to reside next to the ports on the CPU, and uh, doubling it means that you have to push things, other things out the way. And some and things like the high-density libraries being smaller helps aid that double, doubling the L1 cache. They also said that the doubling the L1 cache had no hit to latency, um, but they didn't 
necessarily go into a deep dive into how they did that, um, which is something I need to loop back with them on. But along with the doubled cache, we also have a better branch prediction unit. Again, they didn't go much into you know how that works, but they're saying that they're they're throwing away unneeded bytes in instructions. So if you issue an instruction, it grabs a 64-bit cache line in order to execute that instruction, and they will throw away the three or four bytes at the end that they don't need. As a result, that saves power. The CPU itself, the SOC, the APU, whatever you want to call it, um, now has more power planes as well, or power areas, so when it comes to racing to sleep and idle, they can manage different areas of the CPU differently, so if one area of the CPU is not needed, they can power it down, that reduces power costs, um, which increases battery life, especially, which is important for a mobile SOC. Um, one of the big features also with Caruso is the enhanced uh, unified video decoder, the UVD, which um, this is their sixth generation UVD. Um, they've increased the bandwidth of the UD by a factor of four. Um, again, this is another benefit of uh, using high density libraries. They've managed to put more space into the UVD to increase the bandwidth. So now instead of being able to do one 1080p frame, at 60 FPS they can do um, 60 FPS, I think it's 60 FPS, so I may have to go back and check the slide. But instead of doing one 1080p frame, they can now do a 4K frame in the same time, which means that when you go down to 1080p decoding, or in this case scaling, because um, they've, they've, they've changed the, uh, the scaler, when it, come, when, it, when it comes to processing 1080p frames, it now takes one quarter of the time, which means that in that the other three quarters of the time, they can either load up other frames to cache, or it can just send the uh, decoder and the DRAM to sleep, which again saves power. Um, so they're quoting a, a lot longer video watching time uh, for Carrizo laptops, which um, we should see OEMs integrate into devices soon. With the with the video scaling. Um, they've actually minimized data transfer with video scaling. So normally you'd have um, you'd have the video data go into go go from the file into DRAM. The DRAM would go into the GPU to scale. Then you go back out to DRAM. Then you go into the display and then go out. What they've done is they've minimized that. So they've minimized the number of copies by um, integrating some IP into the in, into into the display port so uh, into the um, display block I should say so it minimizes those transfers by another one um, talk about this in the article on the website in more detail um, worth checking it out Carrizo also introduces um, full HEVC decode in laptops um, so normally HEVC decode is a software driven function requiring lots of CPU power and that usually results in choppy feedback. They've integrated um, a decode IP block into the UVD, so now it needs the CPU less and less and less. This means that it can happily play around with HEVC videos, which is something that all the major streaming services are going to be using in the near future for 4K content if they're not already using it. What was telling is that Carrizo isn't focusing on VP9. VP9 is a codec that Google uses for YouTube. Whereas Intel has specifically said that they're using VP9 
Um, they have a VP, partially VP9 IP block, but AMD hasn't, just based on the fact that they say more and more content will go through the streaming services than using HEVC. So they see that as a future play. They may integrate VP9 at a later date, but um, with Carrizo it's just HEVC. Carrizo also has the added benefit of having two more compute units um, on the GPU for 15 watts, um, which increases you know gaming performance at least by a good by 33%. But with the power enhancements that they've done, they can drive voltage, they can drive frequency higher. So if you include the IPC, the frequency, and the added compute units. Uh, AMD is quoting a 65% jump in 3D Mark score from Converi to Carrizo, um, which I think is uh, interested a lot of people. We're hoping to work closely with AMD to at least test most of these claims because at the minute we don't have devices on hand. They did have devices on show, but obviously they were closely guarding them. This is almost a paper launch. They say um, devices should be out by the end of the month with Carrizo but we want to be able to independently test and verify the Carrizo claims, which is um, important for us and important for you guys as our readers and listeners. But we'll, we'll loop back in with AMD to get some of that testing done. But Carrizo looks interesting, and, you know, if, it, if, if I can see a use for it, my, my next laptop might be Carrizo, depending on, you know, just how the industrial design from the OEMs comes out, because as people rightly noted in our article, AMD has an image problem in laptops. I mean, most of the time we see AMD APUs in small, lower-cost systems running 13 by 7 displays that get hot and don't have much battery life. And I can attest to having owned, you know, something that bad in the yeah, past. Yeah, I've also had some laptops, some cheap laptops with AMD, and well, even the overall build quality is pretty bad compared to what you get if you buy something a little more expensive. So, so this is one of the things I think AMD might have some problems with is the fact that OEMs see AMD also as a more lower cost play. So, whereas Intel's in all the places where the ultrabooks and the high end, yeah. um, AMD sort of needs that high end premium product. They need a design win. They essentially need to be in a Surface or a Surface like device or maybe you know like a razor blade. Or, so, or just something that's nice and 15 wattish, which has nice industrial design, you know, full full aluminium chassis or aluminium magnesium chassis that's got decent storage specifications, good panel, good Wi-Fi, light, you know, all the normal things we look for in a good laptop that we've seen, you know, from Intel-based laptops over the last couple of years. I just want to be able to just stick a Carrizo in and see how that performs in comparison. Well, I think uh, Carrizo is something that can actually enable better user experience in the uh, sub seven hundred dollar price range. Right now, well, you got the UX three hundred five from Asus, which is well, at least I think it's the best laptop you can get for the price. If you want something that's light and has good design, and well, even the battery life is pretty good. The UX three hundred five is that Core M or is that an i three or an i five? I forget. Uh, well, I'm talking about the Core M. Yeah, yeah, I'm not yeah, sure yeah. if I remember the uh, actual product number, but yeah, yeah, the Core M model. Yeah, so that uh, Core M would be, you know, a, I I would assume, you know, despite the fact that that's four and a half watt, it's also Intel's premium play. 
So yeah. we might see that line up against Carrizo a fair bit, despite the fact that there's another you know ten watts of TDP there from AMD. But I'd imagine that where Core M was in sort of the three hundred five that ultra super lightweight, you might see Carrizo in something slightly heavier, but also slightly bigger. Yeah, I mean, still fifteen watts. You can you can get away with the ultra book like something about the ultra book spec. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, because there are a couple of sort of i3s and i5s in there. Yeah, because right now I think what the Ultrabook or in general laptops need is smaller and also cheaper. Because right now, if you want an Ultrabook, it's you'll have to pay quite a bit for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're recording this in front of my ZenBook Infinity, and uh, that's uh, that's the sort of thing we're talking about here. Yeah, because that 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 I think was what twelve hundred dollars. So. Ultrabooks need to come down in price. Well, I guess people might argue that the more you come down in price, the more you get into a tablet, so you might as well just get a Surface or something like that. Yeah, but even, even with Surface, you can. it's not something you can easily use on your lap because it's it's not a laptop, it's it's a, it's a tablet. Yeah. I think that's what, uh, what we've also been saying in our reviews, that if you want something, I think what Brett said in his Surface uh, 3 review is that if you want a laptop, you shouldn't get the Surface because it's, it's yeah. something that you can use on a table. But if you want something in in your lap, that's that's not happening with the Surface. Then again, my laptop slides off my lap when I'm trying to live blog. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely see your point. Yeah, yeah. So that that was Carrizo. Check out our deep dive into what we were told about the architecture um, to hear our thoughts on that in a bit in a, a more textual fashion. But we'll hopefully do a deep dive. Um, when we can get the products into test. Now, m- more so into the show itself, both Christian and I have been running around like crazy this week, um, jumping in taxis, um, jumping out into 30, 35 degree heat, 90% humidity, wearing suits. But, you know, I always enjoy coming to Computex every year anyway, because um, you get to meet so many people, uh, see so many new products, and get to discuss the industry, you know, with people who are who are the industry, both you know, from the media side, the PR side, the engineering side, especially in Taiwan, because um, a lot of the companies I deal with tend to be based here. So I get to speak to a lot of engineers. And your, 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 the companies Christian deals with, is they're nearby. They're either here or they're in Korea. Or... Uh, I think most of the bigger ones are, in, are US-based. So you have OZZ, Intel, Micron. They have... Well, let's say all the key people that we usually deal with are here, but I would say, I would say that still at CES, they usually have more of the engineering side because this is more of a marketing a marketing show for them. You saw a few uh, TLC SSD announcements and products and stuff. Yeah, so, uh, so in the past, like I think most of you know, is that, well, Samsung was the first one with TLC back in 2012, but and last year, uh, Sandisk was the second one with their uh, Ultra 2. But after that, we haven't really seen anyone coming up with their uh, TLC designs until until now at Computex, when basically everyone showed off their uh, design. It's going to make sense because Marvel and Silicon Motion both have their uh, solutions ready, or especially the Silicon Motion one, because that's well, the way Silicon Motion works is that. They supply both the uh, silicon as well as the firmware, so all you need to do is the assembly, which is pretty basic. And there's uh, a lot of contractors here in 
uh, Taiwan and China that uh, do contract manufacturing. Whereas with Marvel, you actually had to do the uh, firmware on your own or buy it from someone else. So, so who uh, who actually had drives to show? So the ones I saw were uh, Adata, OZZ, Plexter. Uh, I think everyone is targeting one terabyte now. It seems that the market isn't really, or the client market isn't really uh, ready for two terabytes yet, because that would still be at least six hundred bucks. I'm sure a few of our readers wouldn't mind a two terabyte SSD. Yeah, I've seen requests for those, but I Vol- mean, volume isn't there right now. Yeah, I mean, even Samsung said with the 850 Evo that, well, at first it was supposed to come in two terabytes, but uh, then they said that it just doesn't make sense to build it now because the volume isn't there. Well, Fison actually has, or they had a two terabyte SSD at their uh, suite, and well, it's something they can do, but right now the cost is too high because in order to do that, you need uh, 16 die stacks from Toshiba, and they cost about three times the money compared to eight die or smaller stacks. Oh, okay. So it's a cost thing as well. Yeah, it's a cost thing. There's a limited number of sockets for uh, NAND packages. Yeah. So you, so if you want to go higher, you also need higher density packages, and building those isn't exactly simple. Right. Sam- Samsung is the only one who has actually who is shipping 16 die stacks in high volume. Oh, okay. But is, is, isn't that one of the problems that we face with TLC? I mean, Samsung, you know, given by virtue of the fact that they've been out for so long, means that they can sort of say, well, we've got the volume now to negate this. But um, the price of TLC um, is, and the price of MLC drives are sort of on parity, which means that you might as well get the MLC because it has the higher endurance. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things I've been telling to everyone here at Compex. And just right now, if you if you go buy buy a TLC drive, you're not getting any price benefit compared to MLC drives. So especially Crucial's BX100, that's usually the cheapest drive, and it's using Micron 16 nanometer MLC. So why why would you buy, uh, which is a lot slower, and you also get lower endurance for more money? It's something that the um, SSD manufacturers has have to address. I mean, because people aren't going to buy TLC just because of the fact it's TLC. I mean, most people buy SSDs based on the price. Yeah. For me, well, I guess I'd say for my brother, who's more co- co- price conscious, when he looks at an SSD, he, he looks at price for capacity and then who the manufacturer is. So if the price for capacity is fine... Looks at the manufacturer. If the manufacturer is somebody who he's had a good record with, then he'll go for it. If it's somebody who he hasn't had a good record with, he won't. If it's somebody who doesn't know, he'll either ask me or look online. <laughs> TLC is definitely the way forward. We can't deny any of that. Yeah, but I think for TLC to really become mainstream, we have to wait for 3D because, well, like we saw with the 850 Evo, 3D TLC is more like modern planar NAND, so you get much higher performance, or performance about the same as you get with MLC NAND today. What about endurance? Well, the 850 EVO actually has more endurance than most of the MLC drives, so you get uh, 150 terabytes with uh, with the higher capacity, and 75, 75 terabytes with uh, 256, and less than that. Well, the, the Samsung drives have been a good money spinner, um, but just to touch on the, the, the issue with data retention... 
Oh yeah, that one. I guess we all know that the problem existed. It seems that Samsung has fixed it with the latest app. But they said they fixed it before. Yeah, I mean that update came like a month after we found out the issue, so it was clear that they didn't have the time to do long-time validation. Well, to to just clarify, the issue was that if the drive was in a low-powered state or off, for a long time, it was... No, no, no. The problem was that it didn't have to be off. It's just, it was enough that you had old data in the drive. So you had right. some data that hadn't changed in a while, which is what, I guess, most uh, read-only data is. You don't yeah. change that. And then, then, then you get sort of voltage drift due to, you know, temperature cycling based on your ambient temperature and stuff. Yeah. Well, the way NAND works is that because you store the electrons in the floating gate, which is just surrounded by insulators in due time because you have interference from the uh, neighboring cells yeah so you get some voltage changes over time even though you aren't actually doing anything to the cell and that just corrupts data yeah so once the once you lose some uh, electrons in the floating gate the voltage changes and well because the way you read NAND is you check the voltage and then determine what the bit value of the cell is yeah and so the, all it required was a firmware fix, or so they say right now. Deep down, even the new firmware doesn't really fix the inherent issue, because what they are actually doing now is shifting around old data, so no data in the drive gets old. So right, let's yeah. say after a month, they basically rewrite old data, so it doesn't get to the state where uh, the voltage drift is too big, so it ends up uh, affecting performance. What's the effect on the endurance though? Obviously endurance decreases slightly. So obviously there's some impact, but in our uh, article about that I did some calculations and like even in the worst case scenario which I think was, or I figured that if you rewrite all old data, so basically you rewrite the whole drive once a week yeah, you would end up losing about I can't remember the exact numbers, but you would still have over 70% of the drive's life left. Okay. So, so for the average user who writes maybe 10 gigabytes or less a day, it's, it's not going to make any difference. The standard endurance would go down from 10 years to 7 years in that sense. Yeah, something like and that. And that's well within normal upgrade cycles. So. Yeah. I mean, I know some people weren't happy, or happy about that, and... Technically, um, the implementation of Samsung has it's okay. It's the way to fix it, but it's not. It's it, they have to fundamentally sort something out in the uh, the physical level for future. Yeah, or they need something. Because I don't think Samsung has LDPC uh, error correction in the uh, drives. Although Samsung hasn't really talked about what they are doing with the uh, error correction side, but. In order to tackle that, I think they would need some uh, some stronger error correction to not in case so they wouldn't have to do what they're doing now. Does that essentially mean a stronger controller, a more power hungry controller, maybe? Silicon Motion and uh, uh, Marvel both have LDPC right now, and so does well OCC doesn't have they have their own uh, Toshiba technology, but what LDPC basically does it's like once you have to use LDPC error correction, you get this quite dramatic uh, impact on performance, and that as well increases power consumption. So it's uh, we're we're in a period of adjustment in the SSD space because everybody wants to have TLC, but TLC has 
issues which drive up power, which perhaps decrease longevity. Yeah, and that's why I'm not that enthusiastic about planar TLC anymore, because nobody's really promising any big price cuts. Everyone's just saying that maybe 5 possibly even 10%, but I wouldn't say that's enough, especially with uh, Toshiba's 15 nanometer MLC coming out. But they're going to produce a fair amount of that, I'd imagine. Yeah, because uh, Sandisk and Toshiba doesn't have, don't have uh, 3D until sometime next year. Yeah. And even then, from what I've talked to them here and before, their strategy is that because it doesn't really, because the 15 nanometer node is very price competitive, yeah. and the first generation 3D just won't be, it can't match that. You need much more layers. That even even though they have 48 layers, that that won't be enough to really get the price parity with planar NAND. So their strategy seems to be that, or what they've told me is that planar NAND, or their 15 nanometer node, it will stick around for longer than a year. Of course, 3D will be, especially on the enterprise space, because you get higher endurance, it will be a big play, possibly in the higher end client side as well. So we'll see MLC, at least for the next three, four, five years, still being a big part. Based on all the uh, analysts and like all the estimations I've seen, 3D once 3D makes a big play, we'll see uh, TLC taking a large portion of the client market. Yeah, this makes sense because you basically get the same level of performance and endurance as you get with uh, MLC NAND today. TLC SSDs, hot topic at Computex this year. Now, uh, a matter close to my heart um, is uh, motherboards being the motherboard editor. So at the show, we saw the first mock... Well, you could say mock-ups, you could say actual working products of um, the 100 series motherboards um, designed for Intel's 6th generation Skylake, which they... Uh, for, well, they, 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 they mentioned in the Intel keynote, but we saw some motherboards up around the show. There were a few that stood out um, that I'd like to sort of go over. So Biostar... Biostar is not a name that uh, is a name that a lot of people who work with motherboards know but not necessarily use because they're small volume and they're usually seen as maybe OEM of others or at least a manufacturer of others. But Biostar had a couple of motherboards on the B chipset and on the H chipset that used combination DDR3 slots and DDR4 slots. That means that with your 100 series motherboard, you can either use DDR3 or DDR4. You can't use both at the same time. So back in back when we transitioned from DDR2 to DDR3, there were some boards that came out that used it had DDR2 slots and DDR3 slots. So the ability that you could upgrade the motherboard and CPU at once and still keep your memory. But then at a later time, if you wanted to buy more memory, especially now that DDR4 has 16 gigabyte UDIMs, means that you could upgrade your memory at a later date, which now I remember I'm back at CES, a number of companies asked me, what do I think about combined DDR3 and DDR4 motherboards? And I turned around and said, well, it's like DDR2 and DDR3. You're going to see them on some cheap models, but I expect all the most high-end models to be you know, the latest technology. People are going to upgrade the lot. But it also depends on how how performance the new CPU is. If the CPU has lots more performance, um, say when we went to Conroe, when we went to Sandy Bridge, 
then a lot of people will shift because the performance is there to be taken. So it'll be highly dependent on performance, at least. Other motherboards that took interest was uh, ECS. <laughs> Again, another sort of not as well-known company. Um, ECS actually are, are an OEM for a lot of others, and uh, they make several million motherboards a year out of the 80 million a year market. So they're people to know, and they were implementing the first retail version of Realtek's Dragon network controller. So network controllers on motherboards typically go Realtek um, for budget, Intel for you know more mainstream performance and high end. Then you have the killer. The killer Nick is designed to help prioritize gaming performance, or you can essentially prioritize packets. Though people would argue you can do that with the Intel ones anyway with software. And what Realtek Dragon is? Realtek Dragon is essentially another killer, but made by Realtek, so they're offering it for very slightly cheaper than killer. Um, and the reason they've called it Dragon is, I think, because the biggest purchaser of killer network ports is MSI, and MSI's logo is a dragon. <laughs> Though that Realtek may have shot themselves in, a, in the foot, because um, it means that not a lot of other companies are going to use Realtek Dragon, because people can say, well, you're using a dragon. Why aren't MSI using a dragon? They're the ones with the dragon logo. So, real. I don't know, I think some marketing genius thought they could capture the MSI market and I've spoken to MSI and they've tested it there, but they have a long-term relationship and a good deal with Killer across their product ranges, so it'll take a lot for them to move off of Killer. But ECS is uh, using the Dragon on a couple of their 100 series motherboards. Um be interesting to get that in, test that out, especially from the software side, because... A lot of these network uh, controllers have pretty poor software. <laughs> so, yeah, I I also have experience with that. Well, so so Asus does their own um, prioritization software. A lot of people use CFOS, um, which is just a standard interface that works with anything. Um, they essentially just bundle the license, or they or you know somebody like ASRock will create their own skin for the software. Then you have the killer software. And the uh, Realtek software, both of which are dire. Not much control. Um, so if Realtek have something really interesting in the software, they might actually have a product worth purchasing. So um, we'll loop back in with ECS and perhaps get a board in to test. Yeah, and I guess especially because they're targeting the high-end gaming market. So you, well, for that you actually need, because software is always part of the user experience. So, yeah. And for that segment is. Because everyone wants to have more control over what they actually do, especially the more you pay. Well, saying high-end gaming and ECS in the same sentence, I'm sure ECS will love you. <laughs> but yeah, no. But anyway, if you're like, if you want a high-end network controller, you are, you obviously expect that you have some more controller over the software. Yeah, and well, the software is actually something that you can use, and it's. Not giving you a headache. Well, the, this is why a lot of companies license CFOS, because CFOS has sort of taken the level of control up 10 notches, and then if you make a nice interface around the CFOS base, uh, like uh, you know people like ASRock, ASUS used to do it before they moved to their own internal solution. Uh, but we'll definitely see that 
see see that sort of thing and maybe maybe real text dragon will also be the same thing you can design your own solution yeah. over the top so we'll see other motherboard stuff would be um, MSI are using uh, now using the Himic audio solutions. Um, this is just a software package on top of the basic Realtek audio. Nahimic is um, described as a French company with roots in the uh, aerospace and military industries, and they have uh, essentially a series of algorithms to be put on on top of the audio to help it become more realistic. I was skeptical. I still am. I actually tried this software using music that I know 100% inside out and that music would be Dragon Force <laughs> but you turn it on and you notice a difference from the basic but the thing is Nehemic, um actually it takes out the equalizer settings so you can't change the equalizer anymore now normally when I listen to music I have equalizer settings for whatever I'm listening to so if I'm listening to metal I have an EQ for metal if I'm listening to classical I have an EQ for classical. Nimic actually takes that out of the system, so you can't change it anymore. If you want to change it, you have to uninstall the software. If I'm uninstalling the software, <laughs> then I'm not reinstalling it. Yeah. But when I turned on the Nimic, it kind of sounded like my EQ settings, because they had you know bass boost, which changes everything up to 200 hertz, you know, and raises the raises the range, and then you had a volume leveler which essentially makes the EQ level and raises it. You have the volume boost, which changes the EQ settings up. You have um, voice clarity, which just enhances the mid-range when people talk. And then you had reverb, which will enhance the high end. So when I tested the software, it kind of came across as a glorified EQ settings adjuster. Um, but MSI are promising that... They're working with Nehemic, um on lots more features, and I would want to see what those features are before I recommend Nehemic. But that was one of the features of the motherboards in the show. Yeah, from what it sounds, it seems that the biggest problem is really that, because obviously everyone has their own speakers, and all speakers or headphones, whatever you use, are different. So yeah. that's why you want to have different equalizer settings. And it seems that what Nehemic is doing, it has the same settings for basically all speakers well you, you can adjust them i mean it's you, you turn it on and then you can enable and disable the different features and their sliders yeah so yeah it's it it's just uh, uh, i think it's an interface over an eq profile setting adjuster which seems kind of simple for a company that apparently has a history in military technology in france but they claim they have custom algorithms so um it, did they talk about the applications of the software? Yeah. Like it's, it's, you, you tried music, but is there something specific? Well, no, so, so, so it's weird. So at the booth, they wouldn't let people try their own music. They just had a video, and they turned it on. But with a video, if you turn it on and off, you don't really know what the baseline is. That's why eventually I was able to try my own music. Yeah. So, um... Yeah, because usually the baseline is, especially music, it's... One of the most important parts. You have to know what you're listening to, yeah. essentially. And they just had a video showing how this is how this would be awesome in games. Which, yeah, you you can say have an EQ setting for games, for specific games. You know, say voice clarity for voice, yeah. um, or bass boost will help you listen to footsteps and stuff. So there is there is that aspect, but in terms of the music aspect, I think uh, you know I want control. 
But it'd be interesting to see how MSI play this. This is going to go onto their 100 series motherboards and all their laptops. So it's a pretty big deal between the two companies. I guess it can be a nice addition, but they should probably have a way to disable it without uninstalling the software. Yeah, yeah. This, um, this is. I, I actually spoke to the CEO of Nehemic and I said, you know, if if you want me to use your software, keep the EQ settings yeah. available. To which he kind of seemed confused and said that I was unique in that regard. But I don't think I'm that unique. I mean, if you go through the trouble of actually setting EQ or caring about how your stuff sounds without yeah. the basic settings, then you want to have the full control, well, not just some... Well, no, I, I guess I didn't care about EQ until about five years ago. And, you know, most eSports gamers are under 25. Yeah. So if you're, under, if, if you're not worrying about the sound because you just want to play the games, then you have a, if you have a sound package that increases the sound quality... Then yeah, I guess there's value in that, but you know, as as somebody who's almost thirty and who likes to listen to his music, I know at this point I wouldn't use it. But again, MSI have said it's a long-term play, so we'll see what happens. Interesting, hundred series motherboard um, at the show was uh, ASUS. They technically showed a Z170 Pro, though. Right next to it was the Z97 Pro, and the layout was almost identical. And then you realize that the Z, the 100 series board um, had DDR3 slots and had X99 Deluxe heatsinks. So this was a dummy board. <laughs> this is essentially you know, a mock-up. This is, you know, this is the design we're going for 100 series, not this is a board of 100 series. Now, a few people called them out on it, online I noticed saying why aren't you showing a hundred series but a couple of other companies have said that other companies are copying them <laughs> so I think Asus's plan here is essentially we're not going to show anybody anything of our feature set just so nobody copies us until the boards actually go on yeah. sale that makes sense because I guess everyone knows that Asus will have hundred series boards when the CPUs ship it's not like it's a secret yeah. So yeah. why show off something that may potentially hurt your sales? Yeah. Well, it's it's a, it's a case of how much hype do you want to generate? Yeah. Because in the smartphone space, people like generating hype. That's why you get leaks every week, you know, eight weeks before launch. But in the motherboard space, I think uh, I think Asus are going to play cards close to the chest until launch. Um, moving away from motherboards. I want to talk about you know cases because uh, while we don't have our case reviewer at the show, both Christian and I took on the case reviewers between us. Um, I unfortunately handed more over to Christian because normally historically I cover the case reviewers at the show, but we both saw some interesting ones um, talk about. And the one I want to bring up is because um, it it's designed by uh, a, f- a former Anantech employee. <laughs> Um, you may remember a couple of years back, uh, Dustin Sklavos. Um, he was our serious case reviewer, and he pumped them out at an extreme rate. He was hired by Corsair, what, a couple of years ago now, because um, he just happens to live in the Bay Area, and that's where their US office is based. And the Bulldog is essentially his baby. Um, it's it's the product that he's designed from the ground up. I mean, he's also he's the product manager for it, and he and he's the main designer for it, as far as I as far as I know. And the bulldog is 
designed to be a 4K gaming case for the living room. Now what that means is it's low profile, it uses integrated water cooling on both the CPU and the GPU. They bundle the things with it. Um, it comes with a very, very short 600 watt power supply, to, so that sort suits any CPU and GPU combination. The reason why it's called the Bulldog is if you think of a stereotypical image of a Bulldog, um, it has its legs in bowed yeah. and usually is wearing a hat with a Great British flag on it. <laughs> yeah, that sort of Bulldog sort of bowed in legs is because the, the case itself has two legs that it stands on at the front to aid with airflow. And Corsair are releasing the Bulldog along with... Well, so the Bulldog is aimed for uh, for Skylake's launch, and it will be bundled as, but it'll ha it'll have a bare bones for end users, and SIs can also customize the inside and maybe do their own custom skins and sell it on as their own sort of design, you know, as an OEM, which is what usually happens. But the Bulldog is being partnered with something called the Lapdog, and the Lapdog is essentially... Um, I don't want to say glorified, because it's more than glorified. It's an extended sort of bench for your lap, where it's, so it's got foam underneath, and you put it on your lap, especially in your front room when you're, say, 20 feet away from your TV. And on one side it has a mechanical keyboard, and on the other side it has a mouse pad. Um, and it comes with USB ports. The, the unit they showed wasn't wireless. They're not sure if they're going to do a wireless version. Uh, that was still in discussion because what what I saw was a uh, a very it was essentially an early prototype. Um, but the idea is that you have you know movement in your hand in your right hand for gaming mice, and then you know your laptop on your left that your laptop your keyboard on your left. Um, so unfortunately for left left handed mouse users, it wasn't suited for that. I should probably actually feedback that that some people do that. But it was an interesting combination, and I don't, I don't, I guess I don't see it coming out that cheap. The design is that you have the bulldog with your, you know, GTX 980 Ti and your, you know, high-end Skylake CPU, and then you can essentially run this cable to your sofa, and play games on your sofa, play PC games with a mouse and keyboard on your sofa, and you know they're playing around with materials, they're playing around with how it feels, they're doing focus groups. And stuff so, and given Corsair's history in designing these sorts of things, um, I guess you can say I have confidence that you know they'll do something that most people will like, though I'm not sure whether most people will like the price. We'll see, yeah. It's still interesting to see that they are trying something a little different and actually trying to bring PCs to the living room. Mm. It's something I guess Steam is trying to do with the Steam OS, but. Well, we've got a release date for Steam boxes now, haven't yeah. we? So, the, but the Steam boxes are all designed to be sort of, you know, five inches by five inches, or yeah, and then a few inches on top. Yeah. So, you know, that that's usually sort of a mobile CPU plus a mobile GPU, or maybe you know something bigger. But then, the problem with the living room PC is always does it have the right design to fit in your living room? Yeah, and uh, I think that that was also the like what most our readers were commenting commenting in the uh, uh, Bulldog yeah. news post. Yeah, uh, I sp when we spoke to Corsair, unfortunately Dustin wasn't here in uh, in in Computex to speak to, um, but we spoke with his boss, and uh, he, they said that uh, the the design was polarizing. 
you know, there's a certain element of the crowds that won't put anything that, you know, doesn't fit into their living room perfectly. Yeah. But there is a, you know, a subset of the crowd who will, you know, put it alongside their games console and it'll be absolutely fine or whatever. And I think the problem with, like, picky people is that you can't have a design that actually fits all of them. So that's why you have, you have, you have to go custom if you want something that's perfect for your living room. Yeah, or you have to self-build yeah. properly. So. Cases in general at the show, um, aside from the Bulldog, Christian noted that a lot of them are hiding power supplies. Yeah, so basically everyone is trying to put something, some sort of metal cover for the PSU, or especially the PSU cables. And almost everyone... I talked to have that. Yeah, it's, it, I, I think it's been a slow progression um, over over the last few years um, that I've seen cases. Especially yeah, I'm sure with, they weren't the first ones. Yeah, especially with side windows. Now that gaming PCs are taken to lands, yeah, or people just want to be able to see inside to make sure nothing's you know clogging something up. But one of the constant things that you always saw was either cable mismanagement. Or the power supply has an ugly sticker on the side and yeah. it never went in with the rest of the... And the only way to get rid of that would be either to cover it or to paint it or to peel the sticker off and then it would leave all the residue and then you, you know they wouldn't ever be accepted for warranty. Yeah. So I think the fact that people are hiding power supplies, you know, it, it was a thing that was to happen. But as a result, you get an extra bit of metal that costs a couple of bucks on top of the chassis design. So Yeah, I guess it's... It's not really for the super cheap cases, but more about the 70 bucks and above. Yeah. So for the mid-range. Yeah, yeah. But then again, if you're buying something cheaper than that, then you probably don't really care how the cable management and... Yeah, how it looks. All those things actually play out. Well, well one case that I saw that was fairly interesting, it doesn't hide the, it doesn't hide the power supply, but we spoke to a Streetcom who had a who had a office or they had a suite up in the Taipei 101 the massive tall building uh, Streetcom is a relatively small company their main focus has been in HTPCs and fanless designs but they showed me a prototype case that they're working on using aluminium but really thick aluminium I, I want to say it's 4mm but it could even be bigger than 4mm but this thing was chunky but it was nicely chunky and it was nicely done and the aluminium was properly finished. And, you know, it it kind of made me feel reminiscent of this is an upgraded Mac Pro. You know, the old Mac, the old massive Mac Pros that weren't upgradable that much. Yeah. Well, they have, they've essentially done a really nice design, which will probably stick up on a news, news post on the website if it isn't up already. But, yeah... The, Inside, there was essentially no structure. I mean, there was there, there was a back plate for the motherboard, uh, or you could fix the motherboard to the side plate, and you know, does uh, an entry point, and there was a place where the power supply went. But in terms of the drives, they had these special clips such that you could put the drives in any location in the case around the sides of the case. So imagine writing the tech specs for that case: number of five and a half. Yeah, number of five inch drives, number of two and a half inch yeah. drives, number of three and a half inch drives, even. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big question mark because you could stick in 20 if you found the space for it around the side. So, um, I remember before we started this podcast, we had a discussion about what we saw at the show, and I remember you said, talking about modular 
hard drive bays. And yeah, Fandex Fan- uh, had those. Yeah, well, modular modular hard drive bays has been a uh, a steadily growing feature throughout throughout the industry. It's the fact that if you only use two drives, you only need a two drive bay, so you might as well take out the other two drive bays. Yeah, because you're just blocking uh, airflow. Yeah, well, and so it looks ugly. Well, the, the, this is the argument that Streamcom had. It's like, well, you can stick in drives however you like with our yeah. system. That was really nice, but the price point they were looking at this that case. Now they say it was a prototype, but they may be probably um, looking for two four nine to two nine nine US. And they asked me what price I thought it would be at, and every price that came to my head is, hmm, well, that's a lot for a case. But then the design is pretty good. But then, depending on what your system is, that might be a significant chunk of your budget. So it's a balancing act with cases. Other things at the show, um, Christian wanted to talk about PCIe SSDs. Yeah, so I, I think what everyone wants to know is what is happening uh, happening with Sandhorse, or perhaps we could call it Seagate now. So back at CES, I was told that we would have, uh, so the release would be would be around Computex time. But as we've now had happened for a few times, it was pushed back by another six months. So Sandhorse is now claiming mass production in. I think it was uh, the first quarter of uh, uh, 2016. CES time. Yeah. So, yeah, they were basically, like, what they did at CES was that, yeah, we'll have something at Computex, and now they told me that they have something at CES. Isn't this a big problem for Sandforce? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest problem they had was that they went out way too early and talked about their design, which I think it was, like, three years ago when they first told Anand about the... Well, they made the first public news about their new controller. And it's still not ready yet. Yeah. Well, I guess three years isn't that that abnormal for design cycles. I mean... But they normally don't announce it day one they start working on it. Yeah. I mean, I don't mind the time they're taking developing it, but the problem is they constantly keep giving out release dates for us, which they keep missing... It's understandable that because uh, Sandforce has had a lot of people leave. Like, all the big uh, executives are now at some different company. Right. So, so some, like, if you saw the Skyera news uh, sometime last year, uh, so it's an all flash array company that was basically founded by the old Sandforce people. Oh, okay. Right. So you're saying that there might be some sort of, you know, Seagate has to take on that management role. Yeah, and it's just that because their technology is pretty complex, because they are doing compression uh, in the controller, so... Can't, can't they use the same compression algorithms they had with the 2281 or whatever? Uh, I'm not sure about the exact details, but obviously because there's more that this or the uh, error correction and all those, like DuraWrite and all the technologies they have. And it's just, like, when you have all the key people leave, it's obviously hard to design something. Yeah. The, old, old, uh, the second generation was designed by the people that were actually at the company. But now the people who designed that aren't there anymore. Right. So you're, you've got a bunch of engineers who have to relearn. Yeah. And then implement a even better version in yeah. the first round. So. And of course, when you have people leave, you, you have less manpower, so it takes longer. So so who, who's directly affected by Sandforce? keeping being 
de- delaying everything. So basically, that's all the companies that don't have their own controller. So from what I've talked to uh, the uh, SSD vendors, I don't think anyone was showing a Sandforce design here. Yeah. Because most of them, like what I talked to A-Data, is that everyone has tried to uh, shift their focus to someone else because they can no longer rely on Sandforce. Nobody is publicly saying that they won't have a Sandforce product, but they need to have something uh, before that because they can wait forever and maybe see if it ever ever comes up. So if if Seagate owns Sandforce now, does that mean the first PCIe SSD with the uh, Sandforce controller would be a Seagate PCIe SSD? Uh, They aren't really talking about that. Like, what Sandforce has been telling me is that they will... uh, they will keep supporting all their uh, current per, uh, current uh, clients. So if companies like Adata and Mushkin and all those uh, smaller SSD companies will have access to the controller. But in long term, I don't think uh, I think Sandforce or Seagate wants to transition uh, Sandforce to totally in-house. Okay, so yeah, make it just a pure Seagate play. Yeah, because, well, it can be a pretty good market to sell controllers, but still it doesn't make sense why Seagate uh, bought Sandforce unless they want to use the technology for their own drives, because I guess, like we all know, Seagate isn't really making a big play in the SSD space right now, compared to, for instance, Western Digital, that has been making pretty strong uh, acquisitions and trying to get to the market and actually have products. And they have some in the enterprise, well, under the uh, HGST brand, of yeah, course. Yeah. With PCIe SSDs, um, that's still still you know more of an enterprise play. I mean, on the consumer side, I guess people are looking more towards you know, M.2. Yeah, I mean, M.2 can still be, because it, it supports both SATA yeah, and yeah. PCIe. But, but what about U.2? Well, I say U.2. The is uh, SFF eight six three nine. Yeah. So those who can't remember the uh, numbers, that's basically the two and a half inch specification for uh, PCIe drives. So yeah. that's like SATA Express on steroids. <laughs> Which um, a number of companies um, at the show were actually calling U.2. So you now have M.2 and U.2, and the first the first U.2 drive was the uh, Intel 750. Yeah, that's which, correct. Which uh, you tested, and I've got one in to test with motherboards and yeah. stuff. But, I, yeah, we talked a lot about, on the motherboard side at least, we talked a lot about U.2 adoption. Because, I mean, if we think about SATA Express, last year when we came to the show, everybody was demonstrating SATA Express with a Western Digital 4TB drive. Which you is know, every, still the only drive that actually supports SATA Express. Yeah, it's the only drive. It was never made yeah, commercial, yeah. was it? So... But it's like the only drive that nobody, like anybody ever showed with SATA Express support. Yeah, exactly. So one year later, we have zero products with SATA Express on the market. Whereas the first time we see U.2 at Computex, we already have one drive in the market. Yeah, and in the uh, enterprise space, we actually have uh, several drives with that. Because you need, uh, it's hot swappable. Yeah, yeah. Unlike- but- PCI adding cards. Well, it's that sort of mini SAS connector, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Anyway, so... 
So it has industry support, whereas SADA Express never had any, even though it was made by the SADA organization that actually should be... Driving standards. Yeah, a group of uh, companies making the standards. But but the question is, will we see more consumer drives with it? Uh, I still think M.2 is probably what we'll see in the consumer space, because you don't need any cables. Yeah. But you can only fit so many drives on a board, though. Yeah, but I think still the mainstream consumer will only will only need one SSD anyway. Yeah, well, that's true. Yeah, I uh, guess it's for the enthusiasts and the high-end space. Then yeah, you can easily you can more easily uh, build rate arrays with two and a half inch drives. So one of the things that came out of the discussions around U.2 was that um, with SATA especially SATA on, say, motherboards, um, the cables that get bundled with motherboards cost less than a tenth of a cent each. Yeah. Whereas the uh, the U.2 cable costs around a couple of bucks, maybe even more. So um, that was one, you know, one limit to adoption. The U.2 cable would have to be cheaper. And, I mean, it's it's not a small cable. It's, it's a, you know, it's a braided... It's pretty thick of... Pretty thick one. Yeah. Well, if you're driving four lanes of PCIe... Over that distance, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's why they actually came up with the SATA Express spec and why it's only two lanes because Yodini. the companies wanted something that's cheap because you don't want to spend, especially the OEMs, they don't want to spend uh, a couple of bucks on a cable yeah. when you could get those for, let's say, five cents. Yeah, less than yeah. Yeah, but on the other side, I, I I said to a few of the manufacturers, I think U.2 is, I mean, we. We saw motherboards with three SATA Express ports and no drives on the market, and I just turned around and said, why? Yeah, well, with SATA Express, the good thing is that they actually have... Because they work as normal SATA ports, yeah, so it's... Yeah. Well, so, so my, my, my rebuttal was to that was, well, there's at least one U.2 drive out there for consumers, so why not replace you know one of those SATA Express with a U.2? Or, or two of the SATA Express with a U.2, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. I think we'll see U.2 on the motherboards where the SATA connectors are, assuming you know, Z-height is suitable. And I, I think that's, a, that's another, way, another potential way of migrating the SATA spec into something a bit more powerful. We saw, it, we saw was it an ASRock motherboard with three M.2 X4s, yeah. PCIe 3. Now, the fact that they can have three of those means either... You can only use some of them at some of the time, or um, they're all running off the CPU, which means the CPU has you know an irregular arrangement with the graphics lanes, which it doesn't seem to have. Or you have more bandwidth on the chipset, and if you have more bandwidth on the chipset, that opens up so many possibilities, such as U.2 support. So, you know, g- g- give it a couple of years. If that is the case, then I think we'll see U.2 being, you know, replacing, you know, maybe two or four SATA ports in the future on the motherboards. Yeah, I mean, from where I've talked to the SSD companies, most of them are only talking about M.2. Yeah. Some are showing two and a half inch design, but even those are mostly for the enterprise. Yeah. But I guess it's, nobody really knows what they're really putting out yet. So M.2 is obviously the, uh, Focus now because there are already M.2 slots in motherboards. Well, there's already SATA Express slots, but yeah. Well, <laughs> nobody wants to use a PCIe uh, 
X4 controller and then limit it to X2 for SATA Express. Yeah, yeah. But if I had money, I'd bet on U.2 for the future. If I had money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess what we need to figure out is how much the cable cost will come down. Like, can you actually make it cheap enough? Because that's... Yeah, and still make the signal coherent. Yeah. I guess one of the problems is also that you need... Because right now the uh, U.2 cables, they need the separate power cable. Yeah. Well, SATA needs a separate power cable. But yeah, but I mean, because you can pull power from PCIe, but from what I talked to Intel about the 750, mm. it's actually pretty hard to pull power from PCIe because you because the SSDs have multiple uh, voltage lanes. Yeah. So you need all sorts. Uh, so you need more than just. Uh, you might need some extra circuitry for that on the motherboard side to actually have the different voltages. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, but, you know, U2, U.2 was an interesting element to the show, at least. Other interesting elements of the show were actually um, a couple of events that I attended. It's not every day that a CEO says we're going to have a meeting, um, and when they say we're going to have a meeting, that meeting happens at that time, and nobody and you can't change it, so it became a fixed point in my schedule. And so it's rare for one CEO to do it, for a high-profile company, it's even rarer for two CEOs to come along and say they both want, you know, meetings. Um, so I had the opportunity to uh, participate in a in a media session um, with NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang. Um, obviously, he was there to promote the uh, GTX 980 Ti and um, mobile G-Sync. But we were in a room of about 30, 25, 30 media, select media and so there was, you know, a presentation session and a Q&A session. And, you know, the questions came from essentially four members of the media, of which I was one and um, Tom's Hardware was another. <laughs> so um, I got that recorded um, and I'm going to talk about what Jensen talked about in that. Um, we're going to transcribe it later when I get time. It's just been so busy here I haven't had a chance. Um, but that'll be a future article. And uh, the other CEO that came into contact with... Um, was uh, Dr. Lisa Sue at AMD. Um, so we had a more intimate session with AMD. Six media were present, you know, two from the US, um, one from Japan, um, two from the EU, and uh, a newspaper was also there. Um, so that was more sort of a direct Q&A roundtable. Um, we all got to ask questions about AMD's roadmap, AMD as a business, and, you know, I asked a couple of sort of tangential questions relating more to, you know, the PR aspect of the media and um, how AMD's um, business internally is uh, structured and how that's going on. So that's another uh, session I recorded, um, which I'd like to transcribe and get out to you. Um, I also spoke to both both Dr. Sue and both uh, to Jensen Huang um, after our events. Um, just to get some, you know, more closer thoughts on uh, what they were doing, and um, with any luck, we'll get more interaction with them as uh, as time goes on. But um, both both of them, you know, essentially in the final week before Computex said meetings, so my schedule got thrown upside down within that week. Um, but we were glad to do it, and we're glad to do it in the future as well. And hopefully, you know, we can get some content out for you guys based on both of those, both of those sessions. 
Luckily enough, though, after the Q&A with um, AMD, I, this was just outside AMD's uh, suite at um, one of the posh malls here in uh, Taipei called the Bella Vita. And I just happened to be at the right place at the right time where um, Robert Halleck, um, AMD displays guy, displays and graphics, and he does a lot of things. He pulled me over and said, I've got something to show you. I was like, oh, okay. And then he shows me a monitor. I was like, yeah, that's FreeSync. Yeah, I've seen it before. And he said, do you notice the connector going into the monitor? And I had a look, and it was um, HDMI. And normally, uh, so that you know, threw up a few issues in my head. But isn't FreeSync only available over DisplayPort because of you know variable refresh rate and VBlank and everything else? And he went, normally, but we can do it over HDMI now. And that... You know, you sit back for two minutes and process everything in your mind and say, ah, oh, that's interesting. So uh, I spoke to him for a bit. Um, I messaged uh, Ryan and Ryan spoke to him for a bit. And we have a news piece on, on in our pipeline section to read about it. But the basic principle is uh, they've worked with Realtek, I think. Is it Realtek? For the T-Con in, uh, in the monitor. Um, they're running custom TCON firmware um, and a custom protocol over HDMI but it means that we can now get FreeSync over HDMI um, 1.4 and the point of this is the point of AMD's demonstration to me and we we essentially got an exclusive on this because I was in the right place at the right time but the uh, the point of this is AMD wants um, the HDMI standard to essentially be retrofitted with the protocols they've developed um, because all it requires is custom firmware on the TCON in a display. Um, once you have that then it's just a natural cable and monitors will be able to support FreeSync without any additional hardware and if it becomes a standard then every monitor will should support it ideally and one, one, one of the issues that came up was well DisplayPort already has it. Why can't we just get rid of HDMI and do DisplayPort? Well, the point is that HDMI is still the basic you know, protocol that everybody uses, especially when you get into the sort of cheap monitor aspect of everything. So when you have um, cheap monitors and, say, TVs, TVs are usually HDMI, and we've got the HDMI 2.0 spec going out that supports 4K, having it over HDMI is a good thing. And if if AMD can help force the spec, just like they helped try and force DirectX 12, then it, it benefits everybody. AMD aren't shy about attempting to drive standards, um, but this was you know a demo they rigged up, and I took photos of it. But there's only so many photos you can take of a HDMI cable going into the back of a monitor. <laughs> but it was a proof of concept. It's not something they're going to be producing right now. Um, especially because it requires TCON support essentially over HDMI. They they can do what they need to do in the driver's side on the graphics card very easily. But we'll see what happens. Um, Ryan Ryan and uh, Robert spoke for a while, and you know I defer to Ryan on his greater expertise in this area. Absolutely, but check out the news post in the pipeline section about FreeSync over HDMI. And for me, that was essentially one of the highlights of the show. I mean, just to, just to round up here, FreeSync over HDMI was that sort of, hmm. It's, it, the moments of the show for me are ones that you have to sit back and think, how did they do that? 
Because if it's not obvious, then there's usually engineering going on. Yeah. I did. I did that with. I did that with AMD with FreeSync over HDMI. I did that with ECS over Realtek Dragon, just because I hadn't heard of Realtek Dragon. I mean, there's nothing sort of spectacularly engineering about that. But I was like, I was thinking in my mind how it disrupts the market in terms of you know network controllers. Um, was there anything from the show that made you step back and think? Oh. Well, it was actually something that we didn't cover, and it was actually from a company that we didn't even meet. So, a company called Microdia showcased a 512 gigabyte microSD. Right, so we saw the news on other technology websites being announced that this is a microSD card, so it's you know the size of your small yeah. fingernail. Yeah, so it's not the full-size SD card, because we have like SanDisk. I think SanDisk announced one uh, late last year. Yeah, so we already have uh, full size SD cards in that capacity, and and SanDisk at CES at CES MWC announced two fifty two two fifty six gigabyte micro. No, SD that was just two hundred gigabytes. That two hundred yeah. gigabytes micro SD card. So, for Microdia to say, well, here's a micro SD with five twelve gigabytes. Yeah. So the thing I'm puzzled about is that just with the micro SD standard, you can only fit. Because with SD, you can actually have two die stacks, so you can basically have two NAND packages inside the uh, inside the card. But because micro SD is smaller, you can only have one die stack. But with to get 512 gigabytes, you would need uh, 32 uh, 32 die stacks, and, and nobody I- has those. And I was actually here in Taiwan a couple of months ago meeting a NAND packaging company. And what they told me is that they, like they, they do have 32-die packages in uh, development, but for that you actually need uh, TSVs. You can't do normal through, through silicon bias. Yeah, you can't do normal wire bonding with that. So the fact that this company have said they have a 512 gig microSD card, and that they're shipping in July, and it's going to be a thousand bucks. Yeah, I'm like. Well, like you said, it's something that you have to go back and think what they did, and this is something that I still don't understand what they are doing, because no company has NAND that's capable of, because with 128 gigabit die, you can, you just need so many dies. That yeah. Well, uh, I mean, technic- while we're recording this, we're recording this, the, you know, sort of the weekend that Computex finishes, there's actually two hours of the show left. And it takes us just over half an hour to get there. So let's have some lunch quick and maybe we'll pop over and uh, ask the company how exactly they're doing it. Because, I mean, you raise a good point about die stacks and how, you know, 32 die stack is still engineering. Yeah, I mean... It's still an engineering problem. If it was Samsung that announced this, I wouldn't be surprised. Because, like, they've been shipping uh, 16 die stacks for close to five years now. Yeah. But Whereas everyone else is just trying to, I mean, Toshiba and Micron, they have products with 16 die stacks, but not in high volume production because the yields are so low. Well, you could argue that this company is doing super low volume. <laughs> yeah, but even then, you, like, because nobody has, I think, at least I've never seen a 32 die stack from anyone yet. And giving, given Samsung's uh, background, they never. If they have something new in NAND, they won't ship it to others until maybe a year or two after. Like, for yeah. now, nobody else has 3D NAND because Samsung isn't 
sending uh, giving that out, and it's the same Samsung TLC. Nobody can get that in high volume. And Microdia isn't a company that we've uh, come across before. So. Yeah, that too, because and they aren't. Uh, well, they do make uh, flash products, but they aren't uh, a silicon company. Yeah. So it's not like they have their own custom NAND die that's somehow magically better than anything else on the market. Now you see, this is why we employ you to write about Flash and NAND, because uh, you do the analysis that nobody else did when they reported this news. Um, so I think we're going to have to go head over to that booth um, before they start tearing it down um, yeah. in a couple of hours and see what's going on. Maybe get a contact. and uh, well, We've already mentioned this to uh, Josh, um, our mobile editor, and uh, he wants several yesterday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or maybe we can even find a sample at the uh, booth or steal one and <laughs> well, get home and get it under an SEM for some for, for some analysis, see what yeah. they're doing. That kind of wraps up our show. Podcast 33, Computex 2015. It's been a hell of a ride, and uh, I think tonight I'm going to sleep 24 hours. <laughs> Seriously, these, these shows, you sleep four hours, six hours, and that's when you don't go to the parties. Yeah. So... Um, uh, I suspect the tech industry is going to be quiet for the next uh, next week. I mean, assuming they're not all covering WWDC. Yeah, well, yeah, we have Ryan and Brandon there. Yeah, Ryan and Brandon are going to have a WWDC for us. Um, so I'm thank God we get some sleep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you all for watching. Um, and uh, take a look at the website for the content that we've mentioned in the podcast. And we'll put links in the description, hopefully, for you to uh, check out. And uh, we'll catch you next time.